Thanks, Ian. Latvia, the country in northern Europe on the Baltic Sea. They were under Soviet rule until 1991 when they regained their independence. Kenneth Bailey taught some courses at the Luther Academy in the city of Riga within Latvia. This is the place where those who wanted to become ministers in the Lutheran church would apply to become students there. The interviewing committee at that school states that the most important question they ask an applicant is when were they baptized? When were you baptized is what they ask an applicant to that school. And here's the reason. This is a quote from that committee. If they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many more questions to ask them about why they want to become pastors. There is more than a little correlation between that reality and the theme of this parable. Last week we began our exploration of this much maligned and often misunderstood story. We discovered that Jesus' reason for telling it or probably had nothing to do with our capitalism influence bottom line understanding of it. For we learned that the stage Jesus set for his story, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, was not just some made-up fairy tale type of detail to get a story going. This was part of the lives of Jesus' influence, I mean of Jesus' audience at that time. So, in a very brief history lesson I'm going to repeat today, Aaron, you can check me on it because you're the history teacher, but I, I said this last week, but I'm going to repeat it today because so many people missed it last week. Here's some history to give us some background to the story Jesus is telling to, to help us understand his audience so we can become part of his audience and, and better understand the parable he's telling. So at, the at this time, during the Roman Empire, there were these type of vassal kings. Okay, these vassal kings. Herod was one of them. Herod used to be a small ruler in Judea. And then sometime between 40 and 30 BC, he went off to Rome to seek the Emperor Augustus, so and ask him to make him king. This was very important. Only Augustus could make anybody king in the empire. And Augustus did make Herod king. Okay, so then Herod died. He had a couple sons. They sort of split up his little empire. And one of his sons, Archelaus, wanted it all. So he went off to Rome to also ask Augustus for kingship. But Augustus actually denied Archelaus' kingship and eventually banished him altogether. Okay? Two more quick pieces of information that are very helpful. When Archelaus went to Rome, a large delegation of Jews followed him to argue against him and to ask Augustus, please don't make him king over us. Do you remember when Jesus started this parable? What did he say? He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to go. And one more important piece of history, when Archelaus, before Archelaus went off and got himself banished, his palace was in Jericho. And where is Jesus telling the parable? Jericho. All right? So now, now we have some context. And we have perspective, hopefully, that his audience had. It's not this bottom line, 
Western capitalistic parable that we've often wanted to make it. So let's continue our exploration today. Those of you that weren't here last week, you can catch up by listening online, or, or I'll send out the update at some point. So we are in verse 13 of the parable. There we are. And he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Ten minus, it's the equivalent of a hundred days wages. This is a substantial gift. And the important thing here to note is it's a gift. It is a gift and it is given to each of them. And that strikes that theme of Catholicity, small c, that, of inclusiveness that the gospel of Christ is all about. It's important to remember that. God loves everybody. And we know from Scripture that it's His will that none should perish. God died for everyone. St. Paul to Timothy, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the fact that the nobleman, the fact that the nobleman gives each of his servants an abundant gift, and they each get the same, the same, can help us further our understanding of where this parable is really going. Okay? Remember what Paul said in Ephesians. Oh, I don't have it there. Anyway, what did Paul say in Ephesians 2? For by grace, for by grace are we saved through faith. It is not of ourselves, right? So, grace, we are saved by grace. And saving grace is distributed universally and equally. Mata al-Miskin, a revered Arabic-speaking theologian of the Coptic Church. Yep, I missed a slide today, that's okay. Last week I missed the entire gospel. <laughs> so missing one slide is okay. Mata al-Miskin, he's a revered Arabic-speaking theologian of the Coptic Orthodox Church, wrote that, wrote that the minors represent faith, hope, and love the vital components of the unearned salvation by grace that they had freely received. So, imagine this gift in our story as the wonderful gospel of a God who died and rose again to save us. And the only way to be saved is to trust this free gift of grace. To trust that this is what has happened. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't deserve it. We can't pass any tests. We can't be winners enough to get this. We can only be lost enough to be found, least enough to be great, dead enough to be raised again. We can only trust God loves us and offers us salvation here and now just the way we are. Okay? So here we go with that background. So then the nobleman says, oh, there's my Ephesians 3.9. There's my Elmiskin. Way off today, sorry. Wow. It's been a couple weeks. All right, and we're, we're this. Okay, so here we go. And do business with this until I return. So, this and ho is often translated as until. All right, do business with this until I come back. And that's not wrong. That's not a wrong translation. However, the literal translation means in which. In which would be the literal translation. The until, with the Western capitalist influence that we all have, leads us to think of this as a prophet seeking instruction. Right? In other words, that Jesus is saying, 
I'm going away, you've got five years to do something with this money and make more money out of it. Okay? But let's jump ahead for a moment to verse 17. And he said to them, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. The servant is commended for being faithful, not for being successful. We can't dismiss this detail. Even though we want to take our perspective into the story, it's not there. They're commended for being faithful, not successful. So Bailey translates the verse this way, and I really like how he does it at the bottom here. Do business in a situation in which I am coming back. Do business in a situation in which I am coming back. All right, so let me, let me help with this. If Christ is the nobleman in the story, and he is going away to get a kingship, okay, then his going away must be the cross, and his resurrection must be his kingship. So, the nobleman is asking them to live into this kingdom of God. Defined by Christ. Unconditional love, forgiveness, mercy. St. Paul, seeking the good of the other. Right? This is the kingdom of God defined by Christ. And the nobleman is saying, live this way until I come back. Live like me in the world, even when there's total opposition. And there's always total opposition to the gospel of Christ. Most of the opposition comes right from our own hearts and our own minds, as we consistently argue against love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we seek human justice and human ways and human kingdoms. That's not doing business in which the nobleman did business. Okay? Bailey helps us understanding of this parable when he writes this. Mata El Miskin makes reference to the servants who struggled and endured hardships for the sake of the miners that were given to them. He writes out of the background of being part of a Christian island in the midst of a sea of Islam. He is thus sensitive to what it means to live in a world where the majority look at Jesus and say, we do not want this guy to rule over us. As the nobleman distributes gifts to his servants, he is in effect saying, once I return, having received kingly power, it will be easy to declare yourself publicly to be my loyal servants. I am more interested in how you conduct yourselves when I am absent, and you have to pay a high price to openly identify yourself with me. Powerful. Power. In a world in which grace doesn't seem to work, in a world in which dying to ourselves so we might do good for the other is frowned on as weak, in a world in which loving our enemies is absolutely stupid, it's so much easier not to live like Christ, isn't it? Now, when Christ comes back, and he's not carrying an AK-47 like some Christians think he's going to be, 
and he shows that it really was dying to himself and dying himself that saved the world and nothing else. Well, then I imagine it's going to be very easy to start forgiving and loving our enemies because loving enemies will be right here with us. The God of the universe finally showing us, yes, this is the way. Christ came to reveal a totally different God than most everyone except a few crazy prophets had ever imagined. Then he died a horrible death at the hands of his own creation as final proof of all that he had said about grace and mercy. And afterwards he said to his disciples, and he says to us, now you live like me in the world and go make disciples of all people. The question that he is asking in this parable is the same question that he asked quite clearly and transparently in Luke chapter 18. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's going to be really hard. I think to stand before a God who willingly died doing business his way when we when I I don't know about you but when I have trouble just being kind to my own family when I have trouble just putting the needs of my family ahead of mine let's go on with the story and we'll get back to this Unlike Archelaus, though, Archelaus didn't get his kingship, okay? So woe to those who were following Archelaus because he didn't come back, and that's always bad if the king doesn't come back and you said you were his, all right? This nobleman in the story does receive a kingship and returns and seeks to find the faithful. He was made king, however, returned home, then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it, and the NIV completely lets us down here. I am very comfortable with the NIV as being spot on most of the time. If you use the NIV, awesome. Except here. Feel free to do some radical editing. This is such a capitalistic, influenced understanding of this parable and this verse. Let's consider the New American Standard. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Okay? The original term here is this crazy long word that I can't pronounce, and I bet no Greek scholar can pronounce. And it only appears once in the entire New Greek New Testament, okay? And it does not mean, show me the money. <laughs> what it means is, how much business has been transacted? How much have you been doing? Doing business means the servant would have been out there interacting with people and making it known he was in relationship with the nobleman. He belonged to the nobleman by living the way the nobleman lived. 
that's what they would have been doing. Okay, see, consider, just so you can see where I'm getting that understanding of this verse, consider the dialogue when the servants come to him. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done. The second came saying, your mina, Master, has made five minas more. Do you, do you catch how beautiful this is? They didn't come and give a full reporting of how good they were at doing business. They didn't say, oh, well, we invested in a fledgling company and now we're gazillionaires. Or how hard they worked. Listen to what they said. They said, your minus has produced more. That is so beautiful. Your minus, master, has produced more. You know, I think this parable must have been really well spread in the oral tradition. And I'm convinced St. Paul must have heard it and spent a lot of time with it before he wrote this to the Corinthians, which we've already looked at. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. It's all God, all grace, all the time. These servants got that. They really got it because, let me go back here. This is pure humility, isn't it? Master, your minus has grown. Your master's has made more. Pure humility. And what do we know about Christ? Humble, right? Here's Paul's definition of Christ. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. These servants got that, and they lived into Christ-likeness. They trusted that the way of Christ, humility, is the way, and so they lived it. They had faith. The nobleman came and, and found faith in these servants. And so they are rewarded. With what? Privilege? Gold? No. They're rewarded with responsibility. He said, well, good, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. And the other one, and you are to be over five cities. Responsibility. That changes our whole understanding of reward, doesn't it? So living into the kingdom then, living into grace, is a never-increasing responsibility to live more like Christ. Oh, now we're getting to the rub. That's why we like the other interpretation of this parable better. Oh, God, you gave me such a wonderful gift of music, and I've become a worship leader. Therefore, bless me. No, that's really not what God's talking about, I don't think, in this parable. See, isn't this exactly what Christ is getting at when he teaches us how to pray? Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Or what about this incredibly difficult statement Jesus made? But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. See, 
if we believe, if we have faith, if we trust that forgiveness is the way, then we will forgive. If we don't forgive, perhaps it's because we do not trust it is the way. Will we find faith on the earth? I don't know. Parable is wonderfully frightening, isn't it? I, I don't know. There's this God that talks about loving enemies and forgiving others and, and so much Christian literature, Christian writing, and Christian speaking, and, and Christian Facebook has nothing to do with loving enemies. Nothing. I, I don't get it. Well, I get it because... Uh, I'm like that. Living into love, having faith, means more responsibility will be given us to live further into love. More chances to live into the kingdom. Which right there, I think, is why we've shifted Christianity into something where you just know the right thing and you're in, instead of following Jesus Christ as the early Christians understood it. Right? Because if we start living into a faith that says we're supposed to love our enemies, God's probably going to give us plenty of chances to love our enemies. And who wants that? Let's go the safer route. Let's just make it about knowing the right thing. That's better. That's an easier litmus test. If they pass our test, they're in. If they don't, they're out. Because we have the right test, of course. Instead of well, do they love others? Do they do business in which the king is coming back? We'll talk more about this next week when we examine the servant who failed to live into his faith. You know that one that Jesus wasn't too happy about or the nobleman wasn't too happy about. But in closing today, let's consider one more detail. They were each given the same amount, right? But, and they were each commended for being faithful, but their yields were different. Their yields were different. This too speaks to the fact that this parable, like this whole Bible, is about grace. It's about grace. We see this in the parable of the sower too, don't we, in Matthew 4? Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even 100 times over so. Same soil. Same word, different yield. Why? Because the yields are God's work. We are called only to enter into radical relationship with God and with each other. We're called to receive grace and to share grace with each other. That's it. As soon as we get caught up in our own works as impressing Him and being vehicles for Him to bless us or not, I think we're missing the whole point. Living grace is what we are asked to do. The different yields speak to what Capon calls the sovereignty of grace over judgment. I love that use of sovereignty. The sovereignty of grace over judgment. When Mother Teresa was asked how she could ever help all the people dying in the streets of Calcutta, she replied, I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. I think she understood the parable. When Rick Sacra, a good friend of many of us, 
was confronted with people he loved in need, he didn't consider whether or not his actions would be successful. These reporters this week just so badly oh, I, I was at a press conference and they so badly they wanted someone to say he was foolish to go and irresponsible because they didn't get it. He didn't go to be successful. He went to be faithful. Faithful to living out radical relationships. Follow Christ is to follow Christ. Christ died for his enemies. He didn't kill them. And even if my eschatology is wrong and yours is right, that someday God is going to kill his enemies, guess what? Nowhere in the Bible does it say we're called to live like God. We're called to live like Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be asked. I need to get saved, and I need to start living like the God I claim to follow. Because in the economy of God, faith is the only measurement of success. And I'm not yet sure I have complete faith that Jesus Christ's way is the way. But boy, I want to believe that. And I want to start living that way. Radical relationship is what God gives us. And radical relationship is what God asks us to live out in this world. Right here with each other. This is our community. This is our family. Do we put even brothers and sisters' needs ahead of ours? Or is it always about us and what's most convenient? If we can't start right here, how can we ever get to our enemies? How can we ever get on a plane in America and get off a plane in Liberia? I know how. Faith. Faith that that's the way. That in the kingdom of God, love wins. Always wins. My God, help us out.